0: From PRX, the public radio exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we go on a quest to follow our muse into the mystery that animates the heart of both artistic expression and spirituality with author, musician, and minister Troy Bronson, founder of The Hive, a collective in Cincinnati that works to combine art and contemplation in a spiritual atmosphere. Stay tuned. Hey friends, before we begin the show, I wanted to take a moment and talk to you about a new podcast from my friend, the Reverend Kat Banakis. It's called The Holy, Holy Podcast, and each episode, Kat takes this big question like dying or careers or how to be single and Christian, and she talks about it with experts from across the nation, sometimes from across the world, and then at the end of the show, she puts it to a three-person panel that includes a representative of the Muslim faith, the Jewish faith, and the Christian faith. It's always a fantastic conversation. I always learn something when I listen to it, and I just love the fact that she's doing it. So I hope that you'll take a look for the Holy Holy Podcast. You can find it through iTunes. You can find it at holyholypodcast.com. You can also find it through our website, csec.org. So that's the Holy Holy Podcast with the Reverend Kat Banakas. Give it a listen. I know, I know you're going to love it. Thanks. Okay, here we go with the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Troy Bronsink. He lives in Cincinnati, where he's the founder of a new collective ministerial and artistic space called The Hive. And he's the author of the book Drawn In, a creative process for artists, activists, and Jesus followers. Now, he's a musician, he's a minister, and he's a person who has a vision for the way in which art can transform lives and the church itself. Troy Bronson, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks, David. Good to be with you. Well, I, I wanted to start off our conversation with a passage from your book, Drawn In, A Creative Process for Artists, Activists, and Jesus Followers. You tell a story of someone that you, you sort of met and watched in high school, a man by the name of Ben Long. And I wonder if you tell us kind of who Ben Long was and what he meant to you.
1: Sure, sure. Um, gosh, it was years ago um, in the... Um, Early '90s, uh, the of all places, the Bank of America Center downtown in Charlotte. There were these frescoes, uh, these huge pieces, and uh, they were telling the story of the working class, the story of North Carolina, and some of the Native American peoples, and uh, story of slavery, a number of things, kind of to tell this whole narrative. And uh, it was a beautiful piece, but I was really struck by his relationship with the other people that were on these scaffolding building this. So just had some short interactions with, with him and uh, found out years later the, the his career path that really was part of this old uh, artistic lineage of uh, apprenticeship, that uh, when he was in Vietnam, he went uh, on an excursion to Florence on leave there, and there he met Maestro uh, Pietro Anigioni. This is kind of the last living legend of those uh, huge ceramic plaster murals. And he would take these pieces and slowly, uh, Long wanted to learn. He was just a sketch artist at the time, and he wanted to know how how all the plaster casting worked and that sort of stuff. And out of that, he started to train to then make the casts um, themselves and then eventually to put the casts up on walls for these frescoes, and then to to grind the pigment, and then eventually to make the pigment into the paints that would then go on these frescoes. This long, extensive process. So he learned this for years and years um, until he moved, I think, maybe to, maybe to the Chapel Hill area, where he did a number of works around North Carolina. Um, and by the time I saw him, he was doing the work, but it was really interesting. He really more was uh, rendering a vision for the work. And he was actually... Teaching these other artists that were there uh, as his now apprentices to get the paint up on the wall, and I, I, so I did some research about how that all works. And there's this uh, this great backstory with a couple other American artists, Daniel Graves and uh, Charles Cecil, and their common uh, work of kind of passing on this tradition. And I, what I think that's so clever about that approach to pr- apprenticeship is that you are passing on a tradition and a habit and a practice, but more than that. You're learning as you're passing it on. You're learning the value of it, and you're also discovering because you're reintroducing yourself to the plaster, reintroducing yourself to the pigment, um, to the subject matter. And so there's like this discovery process that you bring the apprentice in on so that she or he is able then to carry on the tradition as a discoverer and explorer
0: themselves. Well, and this this was something actually that struck me about the way that you talked about this experience, and that was... You, you go back and you talk about all of the ways that uh, Ben Long was trained, but then you also make the point that this is a bigger sort of project than one person could kind of reasonably accomplish. But you also said even though he's employing these other apprentices to help him make this project, there's no doubt that he's the creator of the project. At the same time that that they're helping him create this work of art. You also mentioned that he's helping to create them as apprentices and artists, and that was just such a profound insight that I thought you you had about that.
1: You know, I think it's, I mean, to, to go into our lineage as, as Christians, what Jesus of Nazareth did was he was both living into being the mystery of Christ revealed and walking with people in a way that they would have that same discovery, that the mystery of Christ was coming forth in them. And so it's really hard to say, was he... Shaping disciples in order to build a kingdom in His name, or was He shaping disciples to be built into the way that He was being built? So when He hands the bread then at the in the Last Supper and says, "Even this is My body," like the the loaf, the everyday stuff is My body. All of this is part of the unfolding of the mystery of Christ. He wasn't just trying to just pass along a message; He was also really shaping messengers people who themselves would be tabernacles of the message. And I mean, I, I would say even now that we would say awakening everyone to the fact that we're all tabernacles of the message.
0: What I what I find really interesting about just the entire way that you're approaching this and, and our conversation so far, here in America we have this kind of sense of an artist as sort of a, a lonely, tortured individual figure, but what yeah. I'm hear, what I'm hearing <laughs> you saying is that this, an artist is not an artist alone. An artist is an artist in community. Am I hearing that right?
1: Yeah, I mean... In so many ways. I mean, I think there's an internal community happening within the artist. Kind of Rumi would say, like, even that stranger that we don't know in rags over there, he and the divine are building a marvelous interior castle. So there's a there's an interior conversation going on in the artist, I think, all the time. But uh, I also think there's a lot of underst- uh, kind of emerging understanding now that none of these uh, innovations that we've come to appreciate to see as beauty and design came out of nowhere. They came as part of a system. Um, and so the Renaissance couldn't have happened without many other things intersecting at that same point in Italy, intersecting in that same point in history, the number of resources and number of archaeological finds and having relationships with those in the wider field. And so the, the innovator or the artist's work is in relationship to a field.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Troy Bronsink. He's uh, an ordained minister, and he is the founder of a Cincinnati collective for ministry and contemplation and artistic expression called The Hive. And he's the author of the book Drawn In, a creative process for artists, activists, and Jesus followers. Well, I, I want to explore this this notion of community because... That is a very important part of the artistic tradition, as we've just said, but it's also an incredibly important part of the Christian tradition. And I wonder, sort of, how are you thinking about and drawing upon these vast resources of communal life, and even, if I dare say, monastic life, as you're thinking about kind of what you're working on there in Cincinnati?
1: I think in one sense, to to kind of uh, throw it out there, I think an aesthetic metaphor, the metaphor of co-creating and participating is an interesting corrective to a period where we thought of monasticism or devout work as a, as a separate enlightened type of space. So, so sometimes when we think of monks, we kind of put on this dualistic he- glasses and think these monks left normal life to have sacred life, and only the few and qualified really would go down that road, and the rest of us had mundane things to, to deal with in our everyday life. And so in some ways, using art and beauty and creativity as a metaphor, we recognize that participation, the turn towards participation, is that we're making this together. So community is is as simple as a monastery or a church, but community is a neighborhood as well. There's a number of ways that we are co-creating or, uh, or together participating in what becomes the unified field of a certain group of people, a certain community. So I think the question around how are we kind of working on monastic community now um, Right now what's happening at the hive is we're recognizing that people are at a place where they're exploring mindfulness or exploring um, uh, some new contemplative traditions whether it's within their own lineage or from a, a different uh, faith lineage. Um, they're exploring um, creativity like uh, they're getting into works of uh, like artist ways types of journaling, all of these kind of explorations but doing them really as individuals. And so the depth of the work um, is really uh, is really held back because it's hard to go into those deep waters without another person to, uh, to be face-to-face with. Um, so we basically our shorthand on it is it, pretty simple. It's like uh, um, mindfulness doesn't have to be a solo sport. Um, and so w- what we're trying to do with the Hive is create multiple learning environments where folks together can walk through learning a, a practice, whether it's centering prayer, whether it's uh, um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, just straight out of John kabat Zen, whether it's uh, um, Artist's Ways, Morning Pages, um, and, you know, there's a host of others, even some forms of uh, yoga and Tai Chi and other things. But what we want to do uniquely is provide small group environments where folks are able to process and discover how this integrates into their everyday life. Um, and uh, and I, we're finding a really great response. I mean, we had a class a couple weeks ago, and a woman who's a teacher she's in her late 20s um she's a school teacher and she was in one of our groups and at a certain point at kind of the sharing and the discovery uh um she goes well this kind of reminds me like it's like aa for the rest of us and uh and we all really smiled because there's this sense that like we understand how something like aa supports people in their recovery and transformation but,, uh, but we think that that's for people that need a particular type of recovery and transformation, and to re- recognize that we all need that sort of um, support and accountability simply to come into our own voice, to begin to make peace with uh, the ego that's uh, that's sometimes sabotaging the true self.
0: do you do you find that there's that there's resistance? because uh, you said that there's good response, but I'm wondering, what are some of the sticking points for someone who has been raised in this kind of individualist uh, mindset? to then come and say, no, no, come be with us, uh, open to us, trust us, be vulnerable to us, and you mentioned that it's kind of like AA or, or like a 12-step program, you know, there, there's resistance to that kind of communal effort, too, in our society, so I'm just wondering what, are, what have been some of the resistance points you've encountered?
1: That's interesting. You know, I I don't know that we often get, at the Hive, get access to what the resistance is because they haven't come in if there's resistance. Um But if I have conversations with folks out and about about what we do, usually somebody's like, I don't know if I can find the time for that. That's kind of their primary um, kind of excuse. Or somebody might say, I don't have uh, discretionary funding for that. But we have a lot of scholarships that can kind of make it easy pretty quickly for folks to make it if they want to. But I think our ego, our false self, uses those kind of controlling governors in our life to say, what will we let in? It's the same way, like when I'm walking with my family past the uh, the UDF here on the corner, which is like a you know like a ice cream uh, convenience store, and uh, this gentleman introduces himself, and and we're pretty sure he wants to ask for money. There are certainly times where I say I don't have money for you right now, and that's a controlling factor because in other ways I don't have time with my family and everything else to just stop right there and build a relationship, and that's tough. It's hard for me to admit. Um, and uh, there's other times where I may have that uh, kind of have built in that leisure or have that type of flexibility. But I think that has to do for folks sometimes they don't quite have the capacity to go like, oh, a place that's going to be open where I'm going to d- discover my own pain and grief. Uh, I'm not sure I have time right now for that um, because it's not something they've already kind of developed as a practice.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with the Reverend Troy Bronsink. He's the author of the book Drawn In, a creative process for artists, activists, and Jesus followers. He lives in Cincinnati, and in that city he has founded a a center for contemplation and for artistic expression called The Hive. We'll be talking about that more this hour. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, David Dalt here. You may be wondering why we take time out of the podcast to have these little minute-long breaks with the crazy music underneath. The answer is simple. We are trying to design the podcast so that it pays for itself. And so these are places where someday we will have some advertising. Now, let's say that you have been interested in getting into some sort of podcasting advertising platform where you want to promote your product. We would be a wonderful mid-market solution for you, uh, particularly if you want to reach an educated audience that really, really likes stuff about religion. Uh, So that's what this is here for. So if you would like to learn more about advertising with us, you can go to AdvertiseCast.com or you can contact us through our website. We would love, love, love to work with you. Thank you always for listening. Okay, back to the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Troy Bronsink. He inhabits multiple worlds of ministry, art, and music. We're talking specifically about a project that he's recently begun called The Hive, which seeks to cultivate mindfulness that translates into creativity and action, offering retreats, events, classes, and one-on-one direction to those in Cincinnati and the wider region around Cincinnati. Bronsink is also the author of the book Drawn In, which talks about the spirituality of creativity since we've begun to sort of talk about what the Hive is, I wonder if you would just lay it out there for our listeners. So what is this new venture that you're a part of? Uh, what was the origin of it? How did it start? And uh, what are you trying to accomplish with it?
1: My background is as a, as a Presbyterian minister and also an inner-city community organizer uh, and then some facilitation work around design thinking and uh, creative process. In all of those forums, I, I would find that people want to do that there's a, a lot of reward in being in a safe, trusted circle. Parker, Parker Palmer nails this, right, with the communities of trust, that, that safe, trusted circles and communities enable you to explore those uh, unknown edges of yourself um, to kind of go, what if there's a different narrative that I lived by tomorrow or by the rest of this day? What if I kind of let go and listen to uh, the, the inner true self and explore that, which I think is what... Jesus kept asking people to do over and over. So we started the Hive as a way for folks to be able to take a first step into that work. Um, And so typically somebody has already tried a practice or says, I want to develop a practice, but just can't get into the habit. Um, Or they're doing this and going like, I can't talk to my partner about it, or I can't talk to my friends at work, I can't talk to people at my church or synagogue about it. And so we kind of create a place where it is safe and, and really expected to be able to talk about that. And we launched in April between then and now, or between kind of building the space out and now. We've had 1,400 hours of volunteer work getting the space ready and hosting and uh, kind of uh, helping with uh, people as they attend classes. We've had 600 folks through the space. Gosh, now we're probably closer to 700 after this month, after the last couple of weeks. and then And then about 250 through classes, six-week classes ranging from a Richard Rohr book study to kundalini yoga to artist's way, art journaling, that sort of stuff.
0: Well, now you, you've mentioned a, a variety of traditions and practices. You've mentioned Tai Chi. You've just mentioned Kundalini Yoga uh, a little bit earlier. You mentioned kind of Buddhist practices. So, if a person is coming here and they they say, "Oh, Troy Bronsink is an, an is an ordained Presbyterian minister," are they encountering are they encountering a Christian ministry or what? What are they encountering here? Is this just spirituality, kind of writ large, or does this actually have a Christian component underlying it? It's
1: a great question. Um, I can answer that a couple different ways. Um, as I've grown in my work as a Jesus follower, I understand uh, the mystery of Christ to be something that began way before Jesus of Nazareth, and that continues. So in, in John's Revelation, Jesus crucified from the beginning of time, the, uh, this, this notion that this is, this is a deeper mystery. And that Jesus Christ uniquely in the tradition that I was raised in and in my own experience demonstrated the revealing or the unfolding of that mystery um, in his unique way. But I also would say that the work of following Christ is to keep going into the world inviting people to more deeply encounter the work of the mystery of Christ within them. So when Hafiz would say, uh, I'm like a hole on the flute that the Christ breath blows through, listen to this music. That the courage of that mystic is to simply say, I believe the mystery of God is flowing through, and I will open to it in a way that you can experience it. So, in Cincinnati, in the Midwest, I think there is something uh, maybe heartening or possibly safe for some folks that an ordained Presbyterian minister is creating this kind of space, and yet I also know that it can occasionally be a hurdle for folks who have been wounded by or uh, really at this chapter in their life want to kind of dissociate from Christianity proper. And so it takes some time for them to recognize that the Hive as a uh, as a community and as a space is really designed to be inviting people into transformation and really an open curiosity about the narratives and the lineages that lead us to that. And, uh, I mean, it's been quite a journey for me just to get to that kind of point of conviction. But I think it's a unique need that right now isn't being met unless somebody says it that deliberately.
0: So if I'm hearing you correctly, you you recognize that there was something that the traditional models of ministry or church, for want of a better word, weren't meeting in the needs of people.
1: Yeah, I, I think a big piece of it is social contract, David. I think in the in the West, in a majority culture, when we are the majority religion, at the end of a... Had, period where our religion was used for so many things, people opt into a faith community almost as a, uh, as a security factor. I would believe this is probably true with some synagogues and mosques as well, but as a Christian I'll just say, when people come into a church, there's a variety of agreements we're making when we're convening a worship gathering or any other gathering it, it within the church building or its name. And, uh, and what is assumed sometimes is that this is a place where I am safe and right in a world where every, all this other information coming at me is disorienting. When I go into that place, I can trust that information to confirm my current place in the world. And I actually am afraid that that's misshaping people because uh, the obligation then of convening that gathering, those spaces, is that we won't confront people with the mystery, we won't dare to face the things that we don't know the right answer to. We won't be able to keep converting. Our conversion becomes very stagnant, and it becomes more of a badge and a title than a uh, than a process of continually being shaped in uh, the image of Christ. Um, our minds, you know, have your minds um, regularly transformed, taking every thought captive. All of that apostolic heritage is taken away now when we invite people into a space that, regardless of all the intentions of priests and pastors, culturally, the social contract is, I'm coming here and in exchange for my tithe and my presence. You'll tell me that either I'm safe or you'll tell me how to fix myself by telling me all the things that are wrong with me. Either way, that's what I'm looking for the system to do for me. So we needed to create a space that was an alternative to that, One that uh, an invitation that elicits agency. If you want to come into trans- transformation, in a way that is true to your own journey, and you want a safe place to talk about that with others, we're creating that kind of environment. If you want to deepen your practice by exposing it to relationships with others and their various practices, then hopefully we're a place for you. It's interesting to say, is it a 21st century model? I just think it's basically the only way I knew at the moment, um, or know of at the moment, to create a wide enough invitation that people from various walks of life can say yes. Too many times when I've worked in churches, if I invite somebody, they go, well, I know of an ulterior motive that some of the people in your church have. And what I can say now is that that's not one of the motives of this organization or this um, this team
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with the Reverend Troy Bronzink about his work in Cincinnati with a new artist and ministerial and spiritual contemplative space called The Hive. Troy is also the author of Drawn In, a creative process for artists, activists, and Jesus followers. So I'm really fascinated by this. So is The Hive outside the church and sort of meeting a need that the church will never meet, or are you on the bleeding edge of something and you believe that this is where the church, with a capital C, is and must be going as we go deeper into the 21st century?
1: <laughs> I don't know that it's. I could make the choice. Uh, that's a great question. I'll, I'll tell you a story, I, and I hope that uh, if my colleagues hear this, that they hear it in uh, uh, in, in good respect. So as a Presbyterian, we, some of our... Uh, I was really blessed that when we first launched, we were given a seed grant from our denomination for uh, uh, exploring the field of new worshiping community. And as seed grants go, there's just some simple questions, and it's like, will there be practices here that, that are worshipful in the Christian tradition? Um, is this a community, uh, is there a common community, is this new? And I was able to say yes to all of those when we started this, and they were generous to give us a start That was nearly a year ago, and I recently met with a... Committee of our Presbytery, and and really just to thank them, and as they were inviting me to consider the next wave of this grant, they had some more deliberate questions about what do you mean when you say worship Troy, and what do you mean in terms of that, in terms of the Presbyterian ordination vows you've taken, that kind of stuff. And I was able to just say, I feel like I'm still upholding the vows to serve the Church with creativity uh, and imagination, and to, uh, and to invite people into... A depth of relationship with God, and on the other hand, I think that there are many things here that wouldn't be recognizably Christian, and I think we're better for it. I also think that uh, um, for my Jewish friend, who's one of our lead team, to fully come into her faithful communion with God does not mean that I'm hoping she'll come into a, a Christian relationship with Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and. And I need to be able to say with integrity that I think we can serve best as an organization when she is best equipped to be a uh, a Jewish woman. And, uh, and then there's plenty of folks also, I mean, it's easier to describe it that way with her because she is from that lineage, but there's folks that also are in a, um, more kind of secular postmodern kind of frameworks. And again, I'm not presuming that they need to come to a... Uh, personal encounter with God by the name of Jesus Christ <laughs> this, we're going to go down a rabbit hole here that I'm, I'm going to regret I, I me mean, just put it this way I think that within everyone there is an extraordinary unfolding of the mystery of God which Bonaventure and Meister Eckhart carefully described as the Christ mystery I think that is unfolding in everyone even kind of in a, in a psychological sense this is the, the inner child that's working within us growing to be aware of that deep intimacy with God that's never separated, and yet all of the egoic um, adult voices, critical voices that are at war with that. What we're doing is inviting people to open up to that inner voice, um, which is incredibly resonant with my own evangelical upbringing of opening up to the voice of Jesus
0: Christ. Well, I know that, that you and I have a common acquaintance in uh, a man by the name of Daryl Guder, who was a, a scholar of, of mission and mission work. And I know that he, in many ways uh, Daryl Guder was a mentor to you. And so I'm wondering as as I'm hearing you give that answer, how would someone like Daryl Guder? hear that answer because you this is yeah. this is this yeah. is in some ways you're saying that there is no mission to those that are un unchurched and not believers there is no mission to those that are outside of the christian fold other than merely to bring them goodwill or have i misheard what you've been saying
1: i would believe that the mission is to truly give ourselves away in love and at each point at each breath we take the the love that is um, um, pulling us in deeper um, uh, may give us a type of clarity, and uh, but also invites us into deeper waters where whatever name we would project on that isn't big enough for the immensity of God's love that's pulling us in. So I have no need, I'll say differently, for a while I had kind of left what I'd understood to be organized religion, and, and the language I would have described it as I'm leaving it, I'm following Jesus out into the world, um, because it, I don't feel like this is at odds with, with the experience of Jesus in the Gospels. Um, now I would even say something bigger, which is, um, to follow Jesus is to truly love all of my neighbors as sufficiently enough in God's image already. Um, there, there's nothing more that any of us has to do to be fully embraced in God's love. So the anxiety of fixing someone's thought life is, is not mine to carry. Instead, it's to have compassion because it's our thought life that carries all this pain. And the same is true for suffering, that, that the suffering that so many people face isn't mine. To harness and fix, even though all suffering should be avoided insofar as we can fix it. But but the the depth of the our mission is to is to not flinch to actually to stay with those who are suffering because we're so deeply acquainted with love crucified that we can actually stay in the midst of that tension um, without getting lost in our. Um, intellect and fears and in uh, projections
0: okay so um, l- let me see let me see if I can reflect this back and and let me see if I've mm-hmm. kind of got it so so it's not so important that you are calling people to the name of Jesus per se but it is instead that you see and I'm these are my words not yours so correct them please but God fundamentally is a creator if we think about the Christian narrative, God is the creating God, and clearly, if we read John's Gospel, Christ is there as part of that creation from the very beginning. You're calling people to their creative selves, and so if I'm hearing you correctly, you're calling people to the creative imago dei, the creative, the, the imprint of the Creator upon them to create themselves. And in that, that's your, that's your missional field. Not to, to have them proclaim the name of Jesus, but to have them claim the creative spirit that created them and will create new love and new, new possibilities in the world. Am I hearing that correctly in what you're saying?
1: Hmm. Yeah, it, it's really more the, uh, I mean, it's hard when you say it's not this that, uh, it becomes, uh, it, I think it's safer to say, the focus, the focal point of this work is to enable people to open to that creative participation um, in the world. Not just like artistic participation, but their actual open-spirited love for one another and love for the world in which we serve. Um, I feel like we've used a lot of big words um, to talk about this. I, I I think it's more if I slow it down, Hmm. I think that there are that the response of our God who is eternally pouring Himself out as love, um, the, the response to brokenheartedness that so many feel and so many are avoiding is an openness to fall into that love. And I don't think it's, uh, it is a theological conundrum as to how to open oneself to that. Um, I think the stumbling block that Jesus talked about being was that the opening is so hard and so counterintuitive. I don't think the stumbling block was pronouncing his name or being able to read a story. Um, I think the stumbling block that Jesus said he is, the mystery of Christ is, is that you have to let go of what it is we want to control about our journey. And uh, in that process, there's something deeply loving beyond all description that goes infinitely that is pouring itself out at this very moment. God pouring God's self right out as you and me, David, and as the people listening. All like, So to open and surrender to that does take practice. Um, but it takes, in in the old sense of orthopraxy over orthodoxy, it takes way more practice than it takes, um, nomenclature or categories. Um, and so the invitation, whatever your nomenclature and category is, whatever your lineage and dialect is, come into that practice, and I think God shows up, well, I think God's already present. I think our eyes are opened. Um, when we do that work, which is just a beautiful grace. I mean, I, um, our work is to present ourselves in as likely a manner to be caught by that. It's like to 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 bring up the sails so that when the wind, insofar as the wind comes, we are caught in it, um, to, in the most likely uh, state of being captured by and animated by and put into play as part and parcel of God's loving unfolding in the world.
0: You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with the Reverend Troy Bronsink. He's the author of the book Drawn In, a creative process for artists, activists, and Jesus followers. He lives in Cincinnati, and he's the founder of a center for contemplation, spirituality, and artistic expression called The Hive. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, Dave Dalt here. Earlier in the show, I talked about podcast monetization through advertising. But let's say that you, as a listener, don't have anything to sell right now, but you still want to support Things Not Seen. We can make that happen. Here's how it works. You could go to our thingsnotseenradio.com website or csec.org and make a one-time donation. It would be tax-deductible, and that would be wonderful. But you can also support us on an ongoing basis through a platform called Patreon. Now, here's how that works. You set the amount, $1, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever an episode of Things Not Seen is worth to you. And every time that we release a new episode, you would be charged on your credit card for that amount. You set it. You set how long you do it. It's completely up to you, but it really would help us. So please go to our website or go to patreon.com and set it up. And we thank you always for listening. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today to the Reverend Troy Bronsink. He's a pastor, a musician, an artist, and an author. He wrote the book Drawn In, a Creative Process for Artists, Activists, and Jesus Followers, and he's the founding director of The Hive, which is a spiritual and artistic retreat and workshop center in Cincinnati. You can find out more at cincyhive.org. Troy, in the process of this conversation, we've been talking about in, in many ways sort of a new model for thinking about spirituality and church for the 21st century. But it's also clear that that kind of new model is part and parcel with sort of new models for ways to – to sort of fund and support this kind of effort, because traditionally a, a church would be you'd go to a service and the, at a midpoint they would pass the plate, or a person would make a a sort of a, a monthly bequest or a weekly bequest to uh, to tithe to the church. but you don't have plate passing you have you have people signing up for classes and and other sorts of thing. How are the models changing as you're as you're in the midst of this? Well, that's a good question <sighs>
1: Uh, let, let me play on play with that for a second, and then I can give you some clear examples. But uh, uh, there's a, there's some great work in design thinking, and uh, one in particular around lean design. Um, and uh, in lean design, there's this question about a value hypothesis and a growth hypothesis, and you test these out as quickly as possible, and really discover like is the is your invention or your idea. Uh, of value to other folks and in what way. You begin to kind of learn about that value and that's what helps in the business sector a business survive or in the social sector the social social construct or the kind of the trade that happens um, that's what helps it survive. Um, So what we're doing uniquely, one of the risks we're taking with the hive is that uh, um, we want those who see this as valuable for our community of Northside, see this as valuable for the business sector and the arts sector and the activists in Cincinnati, which already that's three very different sectors, but we see this as value to that, that they would get behind it either as a um, a patron who says, like, I want this to be available to other people," or. Uh, as themselves um, a member that goes, like, I recognize the value of this class. I mean, the best example we have right now in Western culture for this is a yoga class, right? Somebody goes, I recognize that this practice has value to my body and uh, it va- value to my family, and in exchange for the time that's spent with this instructor in this facility, I'll offer this, uh, this I'll, I'll contribute this amount. Um, m- my understanding is that, or kind of our approach is that the the intrinsic value of the practices themselves can sustain an organization the way that a YMCA or a yoga studio might do? So that's one that's one factor. Um, another is um, oh, I'm losing my train of thought here. Another is that the uh, the value is uh, that the folks from the outside would recognize and go, oh, this is actually. Shifting the way people have access to these tools. And uh, in that sense, because it gives people access, uh, it lowers thresholds, it brings bridges. I want to be part of creating the infrastructure that gives people access to these contemplative practices. Um, so, a Fetzer Institute or Interact for Health or these other groups might go, we recognize this to be a key contribution to, to, to growing a community. Um, you know, there's the scientific proof around what mindfulness, what mindful meditation does simply to our brains and to then our capacity to be patient with one another and be generous. So, like, just in that sense, we'd like to sponsor that sort of stuff. Um, and we have uh, even, like, monthly donors that do that sort of work. Um, and so there's a way you can go to the Hive site, cincyhive.org, C-I-N-C-Y-H-I-V-E.org, and there's a donations piece, and you could... Pledge to do a, um, a monthly donation, and, uh, and right now, as we're building our business plan, um, there is a, a need for about two thousand a month in those kind of monthly supporters that would basically say we, we like the direction that this is going, and we want to fund an experiment that can begin to to learn that. So those are those are two pieces. I'd say another is a funny metaphor. We started out by talking about monasticism, and when we sit together with our with our team, who are all volunteers at this point, on Tuesday mornings, uh, we kind of were describing, like, how do we understand what's happening in the hive, and then how do we understand the value of the hive in the wider community. And it was a really quick parallel to monasteries that make beer. So there's there's the monastery and the life of the monastery that has a unique um, uh, impact on the participants. And then there's the fruit of the monastery, which is beer that people, regardless of their um faith, interests, and practice just see, like, oh, that beer's good. And so some of what we offer in the wider community around mindfulness practices and very very straightforward kind of techniques that may not immediately lead to um, discovery and conversion spiritually, uh, that those techniques are themselves a sort of uh, um, gift that somebody would say, oh, I see the value in that, and I can have the hive come to my uh, design studio and lead a two-hour session on mindfulness, and that would be helpful for us. And so we kind of have the, those uh, as a social enterprise. We have those three avenues, somebody that's a paying participant, um, second, the patrons and grantors that want to create scholarship opportunities and kind of help make this happen, and then the third, the actual uh, um, uh, business-to-business model where we'd actually go and provide these skills um, with, with other businesses and uh, congregations and those sort of
0: things. What's fascinating to me about everything that you're saying, so earlier in the conversation, we, we talked about monasticism, but we also you also used an example from just walking with your family on the street and when someone comes up to you in a in a position of begging. And and yeah. there's 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 an interesting interplay in what you're saying because in in one sense, in, in a very kind of millennial sense, you're you're styling yourself as kind of, you know, the hip Broker of some new wisdom or some new practice that people can use to make their lives better, but on another level, I'm hearing you very clearly saying we are completely dependent upon people recognizing the the value of what we do, um, in in the sense of of a of a person sort of mm. looking and seeing that this has value for my life or this has value for the community. I'm fascinated by that because as a person who also works in a nonprofit setting, there's so much in terms of parallels between between both the the adding value but also the for one of a better word, the begging and 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 to learn from from all levels of our, of our society, so a yoga instructor has a certain status in our society a person who is homeless or a beggar has a different status in our society. I think that there's wisdom for people in our position to learn from from both of these different positions in society about how we are to present ourselves in this kind of work and maybe maybe I'm just riffing in a weird way here, but that it, it, that's that I feel that very strongly in kind of what you're saying am I on any sort of right Track here,
1: yeah. I you know, I feel like I want to make one disclaimer, and that is like the the dear man that's at the corner at the convenience store isn't. That's not a pragmatic choice for the most part for him, Um, and so I uh, I recognize that we stand in a entirely different place of privilege. Uh, It's really more of an experiment that if the experiment fails, the mystery of Christ being revealed in our life continues to take place. Um, and so the question that's kind of... The, it's kind of to hold this openly and vulnerably is to say, here's an experiment, and I can't will it into existence. Um, it kind of comes full circle. I'm really excited now that you brought it Long at the beginning. It comes full circle. This beauty couldn't happen without a welling up of other, like a a synchronicity of other people feeling like they also are a part of it. Um, And so in some sense, the language of like sustainable infrastructure uh, can confuse us into thinking like we need to keep a certain institution alive indefinitely, even if it may or may not have the same value that it had in its community in the past. And so at least at this shift, and I, you know, you can ask me 10 and 30 years down the road, should the hive continue to, to be sustained, uh, how do we create the same test of value? And, and maybe it's as simple as, do we have members coming that are still paying and going, this is valuable? But um, but it, it definitely is an interruption of the, um, uh, gotch, since, <laughs> since Constantinianism, to go back to Guter, since 300, that this, uh, an economically sponsored um, church model where we go it has to last forever and we have to make sure that it's not too fragile, uh, That make sure it's too big to fail. And uh, in a sense, the hive is something designed that frankly, in an embarrassing way, maybe this is, comes back around to your metaphor of the beggar, in an embarrassing way, uh, it could fail. And, uh, and there's no special... Um, artificial scaffolding to put around it to keep that from being embarrassing. Um, So um, I'm glad you asked.
0: Well, and what, what has been striking me throughout this conversation, I, and I, you may or may not have known her, but she was a friend to, to me and my family, Phyllis Tickle, uh, before mm-hmm. she, before she passed. But she, she yeah. wrote a lot about the kind of brave new world of the church and that we were, we were in a great emergence that was taking us into a place where the church was going to have to rethink its very foundations and rethink the way in which we've, we've dwelt in the world. And what, it, what excites me about the work that you're doing, Troy, is that it, it really is exactly what you said. It's a bold experiment. It could fail, but in that very fragility and vulnerability, there is there is promise. There's hope. There's the possibility of something new entering the world. And just, but before we before we leave the, that image of, of the the homeless person, the beggar, uh, I, I take very clearly your distinction about privilege. But I also want to talk about how Christ. Mentioned that we would encounter the beggars in the world as being very much the image of Christ to us, the way that Christ chooses to manage, to, to manifest in the world. And so there, there's a, there's a strength in, in being vulnerable. There's a strength, I'm Mm. quoting Paul now, there's a strength in the humility that we bring to this process. And, and how, how does one maintain hope? when one is in that fragile position? how do, It must be a very frustrating position sometimes, but how does one maintain a buoyancy, to use another term from Rumi that you, you brought Rumi into the conversation earlier. How does one maintain that in the midst of what must be sometimes a struggle?
1: So in the – that's a great question. The way I describe my work right now it, is I, I haven't done something that I consistently love um, – before in my life that I I so consistently love. And some of it is because there's two sides to the coin of my work, to my every day. On one side of the coin, I am a uh, spiritual director and mystic teacher, inviting folks um, either within my Christian mystic tradition or with other teachers into a space of that open receiving of God's love, that surrender. Um, And then on the other side, I'm a social entrepreneur, and my work is to take the institution, build it structurally in such a way that it continues to be that open. Even though it has to be a strong enough container to weather certain storms, the truth is uh, entrepreneurship is really, all that startup um, buzz, the startup work really is about throwing things out to begin to see quickly what, what survives or thrives in this certain environment. And so the two inform one another. I would... If I weren't doing as much contemplative work as as my job affords me, I would be too chicken to be any good as an entrepreneur because <laughs> it's just painful. It's painful to call somebody and ask them for money even though the best work is to simply just ask and they can say yes or no. Like There's plenty of freedom in it, but it's painful and confusing for me. Or it's painful to be able to have to ask a question about what class survives and which one do you have to cut because of attendance and how you manage this team and say no to some people and yes to others, that that kind of cut-and-dry work of business, um, to do that with integrity and with love and yet to hold it loosely and realize I'm not doing it perfectly, but I am going to show up tomorrow and still do it. Again, that's only funded because of a depth of a work that believes that the mystery of Christ is deeper than any of my fears, and it keeps unfolding within me. There's, a, there's an image that Bonaventure gives about the mystery of Christ—that uh, that that Christ is the unfolding or the kind of overflowing. So if if there are roles or uh, kind of characteristics of, of in the Trinity, the uh, the Creator God is this container, and the mystery of Christ is the overflowing of that container. So from the very beginning, God is always um, transcending or um, kind of flowing over wherever God began from. And so my work as an Artist as a singer-songwriter, when I'm doing more of my artwork or my work that we've been talking about here with the Hive, that work is to simply open to the flow and see what will unfold here every day. And it's much scarier than uh, than keeping it under control. But it it seems to be the most faithful way I know to show up. It's the old uh, chariots of fire. Like I think God finds pleasure in my running. Um, in in this one, I I just think God finds pleasure in. The unfolding of every day of this precarious little entrepreneurship venture, and so um, because I keep opening,
0: and and so what what is what is next then? If if we look ahead to next year for the hive, and three years out, and five years out, what do you what do you hope, and what do you see?
1: Um, the first thing we need to do is really refine the. Um, the, the consistency across classes and the ways that folks can find and uh, like the marketing to get folks into that space. Once that has expanded we'll be able to do some more work with uh, mid-size and large events. So we had an event with Walter Bruggeman with about 50 folks this summer around the practice of Sabbath that had um, Buddhists and secularists in there in the mix and we were talking about the importance of ceasing. Uh, we'll have an event with Shane Claiborne in November around the death penalty that'll have 300 folks um but we can't really expand to those events too far until we've really established a base and a rhythm for how does every class of 10 to 15 folks have something consistent to it and then i do think there's some folks in other communities that have asked um if the hive would convene a similar conversation in their in their city or their neighborhood i think that's possible but it's really not it's not uh it really depends on whether or not it's the right time. And so we'll just kind of see what unfolds here and then uh, and then go from there. Um, it's already an incredible ride, so um, we'll see what happens.
0: <laughs> well, Reverend Troy Bronsink, I've really, really enjoyed the conversation, and it's been a great inspiration to me just in my own work. So thank you for what you're doing there in Cincinnati, and thank you for joining us today.
1: Always fun to be with you, David. Thanks, man.
0: We've been speaking today with the Reverend Troy Bronsink. He's the author of the book Drawn In, A Creative Process for Artists, Activists, and Jesus Followers. And he is the founder of a Cincinnati arts collective and spiritual center called The Hive. You can find out more about his work at cincyhive.org. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media LLC with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Today's show was recorded at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. David Dalt engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Scene Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com/thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.